Let's now turn to our passage, Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36. Again, the passage is Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36. And let's read the word of God. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. Before we start, let me say that I hope many of you were able to attend the virtual weekend seminars this past Friday and Saturday that were given by the, doc, the Reverend Dr. Erwin Ince on creating a beautiful community. Renewal West Philly hosted the event. They controlled the screens. So I don't know how many of us were able to attend, but if you did, you know how excellent those seminars were. And if you weren't able to take part, the sessions were recorded. I'm told that they should be up on West Philly's YouTube channel, and I want to commend them to you as being really well worth your time. Dr. Ince described why and how the church is to go about being a diverse yet united community. I think very timely message for us. Frankly, I think very timely message for the church across the United States. So let me urge you make time to listen to those. If you have trouble finding the sessions, please contact us here at Renewal Mainline and we'll help you to locate them. Now, as you just heard from the passage that Pastor David read, we're taking a one-week pause today in the teaching series that we've been doing in the book of Jonah. We're going to pick that series up again next week and finish that off, but we wanted to take today to help us all get ready for a great opportunity that the church has in front of us over these next couple of months. It's an opportunity not just for renewal, but for the church in the U.S. at large. It's an opportunity to be salt and light. We talked about those two things at Prep and Prayer Day back in August. That's what Jesus says we are in this world. He sees this world as internally rotting. He sees it as dark. And he says to the people who follow him, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of this world. You are the preservative that this world needs because it is rotting, and you are the light that can help it as it stumbles around in the darkness. You are the salt and the light that it needs. And as our nation comes closer to the November 3rd elections, it's in desperate need of both salt and light, and that's why this is an opportunity for us to help our country deal with the deep political divides that are in our country. 
Our nation is deeply divided, and it's extremely evenly deeply divided. Study the percentages of how many people vote for each candidate over the last several election cycles, and you'll discover that they are incredibly close to each other. That means that regardless of who wins this upcoming election, a very large proportion of our country is going to be unhappy. For a lot of people, November 3rd is going to feel an awful lot like you cleared out your bank account, you walked over to the roulette wheel at the casino, and you said, put it all on red. While at the exact same moment, your neighbor did exactly the same thing except put it, said, put it all on black. Now, it doesn't matter what happens next. Someone's walking away very unhappy. Someone's winning it all, someone's losing it all. And unfortunately, that's how many people see the outcome of this election. Each party sees the opposite party as a direct challenge to their way of life. They see it offering a, an alternative way of life that belittles their own, that belittles their values, that rejects their worldview, that rejects the, way, the world that they would like to live in. And each party sees the other one as willing to run roughshod over all that they think is important. And that is not true of one party, it's true of both of them. We are in a divided country. We're divided along the lines of our philosophy of life, our understanding of what is and isn't moral, of what is and isn't just, our ideals of what government should and shouldn't be. And sadly, that's not true simply in the larger society, but it's true in the church as well. Dr. Ince referred to this as the partisan political tribalization. And he says it infects the church to such an extent that brothers and sisters in Christ lock themselves into their own political parties and refuse to interact and deal with each other. And our country is so completely divided, so politically polarized, that many of us don't even know somebody who thinks something outside of what we ourselves already believe. There's a fascinating article in the Washington Post this past mid-September, just about a month ago, and it was referencing a study that was done by the Pew Research Center. This study found that 40% of those people who support one candidate don't know a single person who supports the other candidate. Let that number sink in for a moment, 40%. It's true of both parties. 40% of people who plan to vote for one candidate don't know someone voting for the other one. That means that their social circle excludes anyone with an opposing political viewpoint. That means that their values exclude anyone socially who holds competing values. That means that if 40% of this country, again, just a staggering number to my mind, nearly half, if 40% of this country wanted to know why someone from the opposing party thought highly enough of their candidate to vote for them, if 40% wanted to know that, they would have to do what? They'd have to go up and down the road looking for a lawn sign and stop at that house and talk to a complete stranger in order to get an idea of why they thought that person was worth voting for. That's staggering. It's frightening. As a nation, we've chosen to live in our own thought worlds, our own thought ghettos. And that means that when we think of another viewpoint, another position, we don't have faces and names that we're thinking about. In other words, we're not thinking about people. We're not thinking about people who have thoughts, people who have feelings, people who have concerns, because we don't know anybody 
who has those thoughts, feelings, and those concerns. And when you don't have another human being that you're actually thinking about, it's much easier to demonize that other side, which allows us then to remain as divided as we are. And demonize is not too strong a word. We're a nation that's divided, but we are divided with energy. We are angry that someone would think differently than we do. We can't simply agree to disagree. We're bitter, we're condescending, we're dismissive. And again, that's true on both sides. And we can't imagine budging on virtually any issue. So things like compromise for the common good, bipartisan agreement, those are not things that we value presently. And frankly, they're not things that we valued for quite some time. But when you don't have those kinds of things, where does that leave us? Well, it means then we have to vilify the opposition so that, they, so that we can then grab power. We have to ramp up our base, whoever we are. And then we wield that power like a club. We hang on to it for as long as we can. Because if we can't, we know that someone else will take it and use it against us and against our way of life. And so you and I now live in a winner-take-all world. That's what's at stake for many people on November 3rd. That's what's at stake for people of both parties across societal demographics. I remember being really surprised at the reaction of people from the 2000 uh, election when George Bush defeated Al Gore. I was a grad student at that time in a sociology department, which almost by definition you could read as not conservative. And when I walked to my office the day after the election, you would have thought that someone had declared a day of mourning. And I'm not exaggerating. There was a heaviness in the hallways that you could feel. Professors kind of slumped their shoulders. They walked with their heads down. There were no smiles. There was no lighthearted banter. For our department, the po worst possible thing had happened. And you have to keep in mind who these people were. They're well-paid, very secure academics, playing at the top of their game in a good school. Honestly, nothing of theirs was at risk. There was no policy that had gotten implemented that was going to restrict them in any conceivable way, and yet their hopes, their dreams, they had all come apart. Why? Their candidate lost. And I wish I could say that Christians were different and that Christians react differently. But my experience is that Erwin Innes is right. I told that grad school story to a friend recently and she laughed. She then told me a story about how she had been working uh, a couple years earlier at a significant Christian publication that's a very conservative Christian publication when Bill Clinton won his first election. And she said people went around exactly the same way with exactly that same kind of the sky is falling approach. You think about that, different people, different party, same exact response, same result. Now, why is that? I'm gonna suggest that it's because as Americans, we've allowed ourselves to make two very significant, very grave errors. First, we have identified people who disagree with us as the enemy. We label them that way, and we treat that people with an opposing viewpoint as the enemy. And then secondly, we have put all of our hope and all of our confidence into the political process to save us from the enemy. And again, that's true for many in the church. It's, it's like we've forgotten that we live in a kingdom that is more just and more righteous than any political entity on this earth ever could possibly be. 
We've forgotten that. And we put our faith and our trust in the political process to deliver us, to save us. Salvation is really at stake here. It's what's at stake for many people in this upcoming election. And so the underlying question is, on November 3rd, will we triumph over the enemy or are we going to end up being manhandled by them for the foreseeable future? That's a really dark picture. So why did I frame this as an opportunity for the church? Because there's another way to deal with someone who's your enemy. Either someone that you think might be your enemy or someone who has proven to be. You don't have to fear them. You don't have to hate them. You don't have to try to destroy them. You don't have to remove them. You don't have to stay as far away from them as you possibly can be. You don't have to celebrate their downfall. As a follower of Christ, you can do something that will help preserve this world from rotting. You can be salt in this world by the way that you treat your enemy, someone with an opposing viewpoint. You can do something that will shine light into this world's darkness, something that will show it a better way to respond to people who choose to be your enemy. Salt and light are both desperately needed right now, and they are part of why Jesus left you in this rotting world. He left you here not to love this country less than the people around you do, but to love it more, to love it like he does, to have a much bigger vision for how to live in it. Not only with people who are just like you, who agree with you, but with people who are radically different from you. A vision that comes not from within this world, but that Christ has brought to it from the outside. A vision that will invite people in this world to consider that maybe there's a better way to live because there's a better leader to live for. A leader who is a king a king who did not ask you to vote for him because he doesn't need your vote. But a king who doesn't abuse his power, instead a king who uses his power to turn his enemies into friends. That's what today's passage is all about. And that's why we're taking a break, so that we can all get our hearts ready. Because this is where your heart needs to land as our country gets ready to vote. And it's where your heart has to stay because it's gonna take days, weeks to actually count the vote to come arrive at whoever it is who's going to win. This is the vision that we have to have guiding us as we engage our friends and engage our neighbors over these next several weeks. Now to get to that vision, we're gonna ask two questions, just two today, but I warn you, there's a lot of subpoints, so get whatever note-taking equipment ready. But just two main questions. First, what do we do with enemies? According to Jesus, is there something better than hating and fearing them? And if there is something better, what is it? What do we do with them? And second, why? Why should we treat them that way? What's the motivation? Why is what Jesus tells us to do a more compelling alternative than what our society tells us to do? Why treat them this way? What do we do with enemies and why should we do that? So first, what do we do with them? The world has a certain logic of how you should treat people who are against you or treat people who hurt you. A logic that can be described as hate your enemy. That's the background for what Jesus is responding to in Luke chapter six. This is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in the book of Matthew, the other place that we find it, Jesus starts this section by drawing a contrast between what he's about to say and what you've been hearing 
He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard it said that you shall hate your enemy. That's a natural, logical way of dealing with people who hurt you or with people who could hurt you. And if you take this logic and if you lay it out on a continuum, you discover that the hate your enemy continuum actually has a couple of nuances. On the one end of the hate your enemy continuum is the more aggressive end, and then there is the more passive end on the other side. Hate can take that more aggressive form of crushing your enemies, or it can take that more passive form of ignoring your enemies. Both ends of that continuum, however, are equally hateful because neither one of them is actually interested in what's good for your enemy. So if Jesus was teaching from the world's point of view and he wanted to help you understand what the aggressive side of this continuum looks like, he would have said something in verse 27 like, but I say to you, undermine those who hate you. Damn those who curse you. Seek vengeance against those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, strike them harder. To the one who takes your cloak, sue them and take it back. Run the beggars out of town, take over what little they already had. That's the more aggressive form of hate. Or if he adopted the opposite end of the spectrum, the passive side, then he'd have said something a little bit more like this. But I say to you, ignore those who hate you. Don't listen to those who curse you. Cut out of your life those who abuse you. Walk away from the one who strikes you. Call the police on the one who steals from you. And don't make eye contact with one who begs because it just encourages them. This is the logic of the world. It's what comes naturally to us in this world. It makes sense when you grow up in the world. These are the kinds of things that you have heard from the time that you were, when you were really little. And through tons and tons of subtle messages over the course of your life, you have learned this kind of logic. And it's into this world that Jesus comes and he says, no, that may be what you have heard, but I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to them, bless them, pray for them. Offer not only your other cheek, but all of your possessions as well. He's not telling you to be a victim, a passive recipient of someone else's evil. He's telling you be active, take agency, invest yourself in your enemy, work on their behalf, bless them. It takes work, it takes effort. Pray for them, it takes work. Stay in there with them when they hurt you. I've never yet found anybody who likes Jesus saying, turn the other cheek. Immediately, we all have these objections that flood our minds. And there are some reasons for some of those objections. Let me give a little caveat here. Please realize Jesus is not telling you that you can't leave a situation when somebody repeatedly hurts you. Jesus is not telling battered wives, stay with your husbands. He's not saying it's a good thing for abused children to stay with their parents. He's talking here about situations that you cannot avoid, where you don't have a choice, where an enemy finds you and hurts you, and Jesus says, in that moment, be active. 
but not active like the world is active. Not according to the logic of this world. The world would tell you, deck them. But Jesus says, don't swing back. And yet, stay engaged, don't ignore them. Turn the other cheek. Do you know what you have to do in order to turn the other cheek? You have to stay up close and personal. You're still in that person's space. You're staying engaged, not to harm that other person or to damage them. You think, well, why would you do that? What this other person just did to you was destroy any hope of relationship. They struck you. And in response, you're saying, no, what you need from me is a relationship, and I'm staying here to engage with you. Where Jesus tells you, take a different moment of violence. Someone's stealing your cloak, and he says, turn that into a moment of charity by giving them your shirt as well. Do the same with someone who begs from you. If they're begging, what does it mean? It means that they're not part of your friend circle. They're engaging you not to offer you something, not to make your life better, but to take something from you. They're acting like all the other enemies do, and Jesus says, invest in them. Give to them. Make their lives better. And I can imagine that there are all kinds of objections now that are just sort of bubbling up in your mind. They're probably the ones that, that I think of as well. Things like, if I did that, I'd really get taken advantage of. I'd leave myself open to more abuse. Or you can't be good to enemies because they don't respect goodness. They only respect strength. Or Jesus didn't really mean these things. That was just hyperbole. He's just trying to make a point. Any of those thoughts resonate with you? I think the fact that they come bubbling up, I think the fact that we have to address them with each other, is one of the most convincing things that tells you Jesus really said this. Because there's nothing appealing about this if you're saturated with the world's logic. If you were gonna make up stories about Jesus, make up stories about a good, loving person, a wise person, a, a guru who had the secrets to living well, you would never put these words into his mouth. You'd never write this. You would never think to write this. Instead, you would have Jesus say th something like, love those who love you. That's logical, it makes sense, it's moral. I know it's challenging at times, but it's only right that you should do good to those who do good to you. Anything less than that is what, it, it, it's just incredibly self-absorbed. You could come up with that idea on your own. Or you could imagine someone saying, well, let's extend that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't simply love those who love you, but let's love those who haven't initiated with you. That would make society better, right? You could probably come up with that idea on your own as well. But what Jesus says isn't either of those. He says, love those who have given you a very good reason not to. Do good to them. Do good even though it's gonna cost you physically and it's gonna cost you economically. That's not logically connected to anything that you would think up. It's not connected to loving people who have loved you. It's not connected to loving people who have been neutral to you. Jesus' idea doesn't come from those. If you were making this story up, it would just never occur to you to have Jesus say, love your enemies. It's not an extension of how this world thinks. More than that, it really doesn't put Jesus in a good light. Because it sounds like if you listen to him, 
You're going to be physically beaten up. You're going to be emotionally scarred. You're going to be impoverished because people are just going to help themselves to all of your possessions. No one who's grown up with the logic of this world is going to be drawn to what Jesus says. No one finds it immediately desirable. So then you have to ask, well, why would you write this? You'd only write it if Jesus really said it. The impossibility of what he is saying leads you to conclude this really happened. You're reading an event here, not a made-up story. And because it's true, because it really happened, you learn something about the gospel. And you learn something about the lifestyle that comes out of the gospel. See, the gospel does not come along and say to you, you know, you've got some good things going on here in life, and things that you've learned from the world, what we need to do is have you hang on to those things, we're just gonna add some other stuff, and then you'll really be good to go. You'll be successful. Instead, the gospel says, God's way of living is so completely different, it doesn't fit into the logic of this world. If you wanna be in step with him, you're gonna have to get rid of that old way of thinking, the way that you used to act, you're going to have to replace it with a brand new framework for understanding and living life. You can't take the world's way of dealing with enemies and say that's a decent starting point because you can't get to loving your enemies from the way that the world starts with them. You can't take that continuum that we talked about earlier and say, you know what, the gospel is kind of a midway point here. It's not really either or. It's not that extreme. It's kind of you know, somewhere in the middle. You think, well, wait, there's no midpoint on that continuum between crushing and ignoring that is actually going to get you to loving. It's because the gospel is not a synthesis of morality. The gospel is not a synthesis of advice that you find in the logic of this world. It's a radically different thing altogether. And that's why it doesn't fit into the world's categories. That's not just true of this instance. That's how it interacts with the world in general. And that's why if you want to follow Christ, it's not enough to be a good person according to the logic of this world and then just get some spirituality added in on top of that. It's not enough because the logic of this world is not good enough for Christ's kingdom. So if you want to follow Christ, you have to work to understand the nature of God and the nature of the life that he's calling you to. You're going to have to study so that you can replace the logic of this world with Christ's logic. Let's do that for just a moment and ask the question, what could it look like? What would it look like to love your political enemy? Well, think about how you wish that they would treat you and then you do the same to them. So don't you want someone from the other party, the other political viewpoint, to assume that you're not a fool? then don't assume they are either. Don't you want them to take your concerns for this world seriously? Then take their concerns seriously. Don't you wish that they would believe that you're a person who has some insight into the world around you, someone who has feelings about the things that you think about the world around you? Then believe those things about them as well. Don't you wish they would stop calling you names, labeling you, that they'd stop being dismissive, <laughs> that they'd stop rolling their eyes at you, that they would stop saying things like, I don't understand how anyone could think like that. If that's what you wish 
how you wish they would treat you, then resist the temptation to do all of those things to them. Don't you wish that they would stop using volume, rhetoric, sneering, put-downs, violence as substitutes for a rational discussion? If that's what you wish in terms of how they would treat you, then don't give in even a little bit to those things in yourself and don't condone those with your friends. Don't you wish they assumed you were reasonable? That you actually want to see things more clearly than you already do. That you would be glad to have solid, well-informed discussions. Give them the benefit of that doubt as well. Don't you wish that they would ask you questions about what is upsetting to you in this world and what you honestly think would help? If that's what you want, don't wait for them to ask you. If that's what you want, take the lead and ask them. Figuring out how to love your enemy is not hard. It just takes a few minutes of thought. But can you imagine what that would do if you actually engaged people in that way? Can you imagine what would happen in this country if the church, capital C Church, the church at large, regardless of which party each person in the church supports, can you imagine if we all rose up together and reached out to someone from the opposite party and treated them the way that Jesus calls us to treat them. This country would be a different place overnight. This is our opportunity. It's our opportunity to reject the logic of enemies, to embrace the logic of the king and his kingdom. Now what do you do if you're in that 40%? That 40% that doesn't know anyone from an opposite viewpoint. Jesus says, you're not excluded. There's actually something for you to do. You can pray. You can pray for these other people. You need to pray for them. Maybe what you first need to do is pray that you would actually get to know one of them. But then pray that God would be merciful to them, kind to them, that he would extend himself to them in the hope that they would cease to be his enemies if they are, and that you would pray for them even if they don't end up where you are politically, because the end goal is not political agreement. The end goal is not political unity. It's not why Jesus said that all the whole world would know that we're his disciples. The end goal is love, love that shines brightly in a dark world, love that says there's supernatural hope for this world, hope because Jesus has come and he's come to change enemies into friends. That's point one. Point two, why would you do this? It would be great if we all did it together, but what possible motivation could there be that you would find this so compelling that you would do it even if nobody else did it? And that you would not do it grudgingly or just you know, gutting your way through it, but that you would give yourself to it with joy. Why would you do this? Well, first, let's talk about why you don't do it. You don't do it out of a desire for reciprocity. This is not a strategy that you use in order to get something out of life that you want. That, again, is the logic of the world. And Jesus goes after it there in verses 32 to 34. He says there's a natural way of relating in this world where you love those who love you, where you do good to those who do good to you, where you lend to those from whom you expect to get something back. You reciprocate. You got before and so you give now, or you give now in order to get something later. That's natural, it's normal, makes good logical sense. And Jesus says, 
That's the way sinners live. He doesn't even call it neutral. He says this is sinful living. Even sinners practice reciprocity. It means you're doing certain things for certain people, people in your own social circles, but you're doing those things not for their sake. You're doing those things hoping that you'll be treated in a similar manner. And so what's really driving you at that motivational level is still your own self-interest. When that's driving you, you will not extend yourself to your enemies. You'll only extend yourself to your friends. Pastor Thabiti Anyabwile puts a very fine point on it in his commentary. He says, if we find that our love is limited to people like us, say our skin color, our education level, our political party, and if we find ourselves doing good only for those who have done us some favor, then that may be only self-love spread over a slightly wider area. However, the love of God is not self-interested, but selfless. It is sacrificial. Genuinely supernatural, God-like love includes our enemies who wrong and abuse us. This is how Christian love surpasses the sinner's love. Christian love extends to our enemies. He's saying we don't love our enemies out of enlightened self-interest. We don't love them so they'll stop picking on us. We don't love them so that they'll stop cursing us. We don't love them so they'll stop hurting us and taking our stuff. Why then do we love them? It has everything to do with who we're related to. Jesus talks about a reward in verse 35. He says, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. That's how we are supposed to engage people, expecting nothing in return. And then ironically, your reward will be great. He says there is a reward. Obviously, it's not one here on this earth in terms of what we ordinarily think because if that was the case, then we're simply giving to get in another kind of way. There's some kind of reward in heaven. Luke, Jesus talks about that in other places in the book of Luke. But a reward in heaven only matters to those who care about heaven. And it only matters to those who care about heaven's rewards. Those who, in verse 5, are the sons of the Most High, who are children of the Most High. They are people who are related to God, people who are related to the Most High. And what Jesus is saying is it's those who are looking forward to heaven, those who are heavenly-minded because of who is in heaven, who are actually able to do the most good here on earth because they're not tied to what they do or don't have here. They're not tied to what they could or could not have here. Instead, it's the children of the Most High who have the biggest impact on this world because they're not looking for anything from it. Now, be careful here, because he's not saying that you become a child of the Most High by loving your enemies. It's not how it works. Rather, how you treat your enemies shows who you're already related to. If you hate those who hate you, you're not living like God does. You're not living like someone who's related to him. How does God relate to people who hate him? Verse 35, he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He's kind to the ungrateful. He's kind to the entitled. He's kind to those who feel no obligation to anyone else. He's kind to the ungrateful. And he's kind to the evil, to those who actively seek to hurt, each, to hurt others. He's kind to them. What's that mean? He doesn't destroy them. 
He keeps providing for them. He offers them opportunities to see the mess that they make of their own lives. He offers them opportunities to turn back to him. He's kind to the ungrateful and evil. So if you're not, if you have no interest in being kind to people like that, then this is really hard to hear. But Jesus is saying, you're not related to God. You're not related to him because there's no family resemblance between you and him. You don't take after him. Instead, if you hate those who hate you, you take after the haters. You resemble the haters. You live according to the logic of this world, which means that you are living a life counter to how God lives. You're living like God's enemy. But if you love those who hate you, when you do live like God does, you're not making yourself a child of God. You're showing which family you already belong to. It's one or the other. Either you are so consumed with this physical world that you can't stand any personal slight, you can't stand any damage, you can't stand any theft, or you are so consumed with God and you find your life in him so much that all you want to do is be like him. You want to be with him and you want to treat other people the way that he treats them because he is far more real to you far more enduring, far more glorious than anything else that you can imagine. You're either God's child or you're not. You're either his child who loves what he loves or you're his enemy who hates what he loves. It's your most basic fundamental identity. This is the identity that transcends all of your other identities. It transcends your race, your gender, your politics, but it also determines how you live out your race, your gender, and your politics. Because you will live out those secondary identities according to the logic of the world, giving to get, hating those who don't give to you, or you'll live out those identities according to the logic of heaven where you pour yourself out for the good of someone else. Only one of those paths is Christian. And only one of those has any hope of making a dent in this world, in this deeply divided, deeply antagonistic world. Only one of those can bring unity and restoration to our nation because only one of those is salt and light. What Jesus paints here is a glorious vision, which I think raises the question, man, that's, that, that's beautiful, but how realistic is it? Is there any reason to hope that loving an entrenched enemy, whether that enemy is down the street, across the nation, maybe in your own home, is there any reason to believe that loving them could make a difference? That it could lead to them being transformed from a committed enemy to your friend? The easiest way to answer that question is look inside. Look inside yourself. Are you friends with God? Or... Do you have an interest in being friends with God? Think about that because that's all the proof that you need that this is possible. You were once his enemy. That's what God tells us throughout scripture. That at one time you had turned from him that you had, had, had embraced the logic of this world. The logic of this world made complete sense to you. You loved it and you gave yourself to it. And yet, when that was true, Christ died for you. He entered this world. He didn't ignore you and he didn't enter the world to crush you. He came here to love you. 
That's what the cross declares. Because it's on the cross that Jesus lived out every one of these things that he tells you to do. When he was arrested, beaten, mocked, crucified, he did not curse those who cursed him. Instead, he prayed for those who abused him. He asked God to forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing. He wanted them forgiven because he wanted to forgive you. He let them slap and punch him repeatedly. He stood still where they jammed a ring of thorns on his head and he didn't walk away from them. He didn't back away, he didn't strike back, he stayed there engaged because if he walked away or if he struck back, there would have been no possibility of a relationship with you. They took his robe from him and he didn't demand it back. He let them take the rest of his clothes as well because if he insisted on keeping what he had, he would never have been able to have you. And even there on the cross when he had nothing left to give, Someone still begged from him. The one thief next to him asked him to save him. Jesus promised, this day you will be with me in paradise. He gave when he had nothing to give. And he'll give that same relation to, to you when you ask him for it. And then he died paying for your sins so that you, his enemy, could be his friend. If you have any interest in God whatsoever, you are living proof that Jesus' approach to enemies works. And if Jesus can do that in you, surely he can do that in anybody. If he can turn you into a child of the Most High, he can do that with anyone. Why not give people a chance to see what real love is and to watch what real love can do? Show them. Live out the reality that Christ has brought you into. Live out of the identity that you now have. Love your enemies. Work hard to put an end to hatred and divisiveness over these next several months. What was that going to look like? Read this passage again and again. Read it again. Read it again and again, maybe every day for the next eight weeks until it becomes part of you and part of the way that you engage other people. Refuse to join in any conversation that starts to sound like us versus them. Refuse the bait of believing that your tribe is better than anyone else. Instead, remember where your real identity comes from. Make time to get to know somebody who thinks differently than you do. Pray for neighbors who display different signs in their yards or their windows than you would display in yours. And cry out to God, to show you just how much he has loved you so that you have a sense of how much you really have to give away. Do something every day so that we can live out together this glorious calling of being salt and light in a world that's really dark and really desperate to see what love is all about. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, you have been amazingly gracious to us. Lord, when we were your enemies, you came and entered into our world. You laid down your life so that we could be your friends. Lord, forgive us for treating anybody as an enemy. Forgive us for thinking that anyone is beyond what you can do in them. Lord, draw us together around our primary identity in you, that we are your children, and let us learn from all of the secondary identities that we have. Lord, rescue us as your church. Rescue our country 
In Jesus' name, amen.